Well, it's not too often on the OHL podcast that we get a guest, the caliber of the guest that joins us today. If you were to look at the 1981 NHL entry draft, you would see the name Dale Howarchuk, former Cornwall Royal, taken first overall and right behind Howarchuk in front of guys like Fuhrer and Francis and a whole bunch of others, you're going to see the name Doug Smith. And Doug's story goes so far beyond hockey that it would be impossible for me to encapsulate. So let's just begin by welcoming the number two overall selection in the 81 NHL draft, Doug Smith, to the program. Thanks for making time for us, Doug. Thanks for having me, Mike. So much to talk about when it comes to your story. And I think your story beyond hockey is probably the most meaningful. But because we are what we are with this podcast, I have to start with the Ottawa 67s. And that's your hometown. And you end up playing for them. I think you started your first year as an underager. But how did it come to pass that you were on the ice with Brian Kilray behind the bench? Well, it was when Brian was taking making his move from Ottawa West to the... Uh to the Ottawa 67s and you know my mom became the secretary of the ODHA the, the Ottawa District Hockey Association basically to align everything with Brian's move and you know like protecting me at the OHA at the ODHA level and and so I learned well after my career was over how much of this was uh was scripted uh, you know so much of of getting there is timing Everything that you have done in the game beyond the recovery from your horrific injury, uh, there there are so many stories connected to it. But you mentioned in your book, Driving in Transition, that the biggest score, the biggest goal you scored in hockey was one you scored while a member of the Ottawa 67s, a playoff game penalty shot. Yeah, it's one of those, uh, the shaking hands you never forget, right? Um I'm like, I, I remember that feeling um, and in front of a, of a sold out crowd um, to have a chance to, uh, to, to take it and, and to succeed at it off the crossbar. It, it, it makes me, makes me sweat right now. It makes me feel like I'm experiencing it all over again. You know, you talk about succeeding at it and I think that's going to be a recurring theme here in our conversation because it is my sense that you have taken away from your athletic career a number of building blocks that have become the foundation for what it is you do today and i think it's all connected to the success that an athlete especially one of your caliber strives for each and every day yeah it's really like i ask myself endlessly why did i get this second chance um you know, and and for anybody to get a second chance like this, you know, I, so many of them make the best of it. And I've just been working at making the best of it because when 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 my career ended, it ended all of a sudden, and I knew it was over. Um, and I knew my life was was in the balance. I made a commitment that you know, if I was to survive that impact that I experienced that, that I would do better than I, than I ever could as a professional athlete. And, and so that's, that's what I've been trying to do and, and just figuring out, you know, out along the way. And I guess attracting a lot of the best coaches still, like still the best business coaches and 
motivational coaches, they, they find me for some reason, just like Scotty Bowman and Pat Quinn found me. So, so if you put it out there in the world, it, it's going to come and find you. That's what I found in my life. Yeah. Scotty Bowman, uh, Pat Quinn, Glenn Sather would have been in there. Roger yep. Nielsen was in there. Rogie yep. Vashon. We can eh, about coaching and managing, but a, a, a hell of a hockey player for sure. I mean, they, they either found you or you made your way to them one way or the other. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm doing it again, you know, with the people that I know today and the business people who have helped me, the storytellers who have helped me uh, organize my story, um, the business coaches who have helped me, you know, organize it and and get it in position to be able to distribute it, to be able to go on a show like this and make it available for people, you know, right on the show so they can just go digitally and grab it and, and, and use what they need. They don't have to use the whole thing, but use a part of it because it's it's a system we're living in so use a part of my system as you look back doug what was it that was driving you as a young hockey player and i wonder were you even aware of it at the time or maybe you look at it now and think you know you were chasing the nhl dream like so many canadian kids do but really it was about something else but when you look back on yourself as that 17 18 year old hockey player what was driving you well, I mean, I, I had a lot of belief in self, um, but I also I was also diagnosed uh, with ADHD when I was very young. So in my lifetime, I've managed in many sports to to be able to manage spin and to be able to manage high speed multi object tracking, and, and so I'm very good at that because of something I was diagnosed with when I was 13, and so hockey just came natural because it's all about how the puck spins right and and it's all about centrifugal force and and turning and the underneath leg and all, all those things just seem to make sense to me uh and, and and i i i was on the ice all the time because i grew up on the ottawa river and across the street from my house was the outdoor rink on grandview road in ottawa and so i, I had ice on both sides of the house so what are you going to do? You're going to go out and play. And then my dad wanted me to play on his outdoor team when I was 12 or 13. And, and you end up feeling what it's like to run into, you know, a 200 pound, 250 pound man, you know, when you're 12, 13 and you try, you learn how to avoid it. <laughs> you know, that makes me think of all those coaches we talked about. I didn't ask for anything specific about Brian Kilray. What was it like playing for him? What did he mean to your career as a junior player? Well, he he he's builds belief in self. That's what he's an expert at. He finds the holes in your belief. And that's that's what he does. He taught me that. And then he su supports the weak spots in your belief system. And and the challenge with that is he really hones in on whether you're ready to make the change you need to make to be a better hockey player. Because you can't, he he traps the mind in a way, right? So that you you expose yourself to him, and if he doesn't like what he sees, then he can't keep you around. If you haven't made the decision yet that that you're gonna just stick your head in there every time, then it's not gonna work out right now. You might get an, another chance down the road, but you know that's what they're looking for in the sports industry, right? They're they're making it safer, but you got to be prepared to go full throttle. As that 1981 NHL draft approached, how confident were you about where it was that you were going to be selected? Ultimately, of course, as mentioned, number two overall. 
I was just playing the game because I loved it. I don't even remember the draft in Montreal. I just I have no recollection of it. It's uh, like there's a part of my life that's sort of wiped out because there was just so much coming at me uh, so fast, so so much being said about me so fast. Um, I can't imagine what it's like today for the young guys who get who who are going high in the draft with the digital technology that we didn't have back then. It, it must be. It must be extremely traumatic at times for a lot of these a lot of these players. It must affect them dramatically. That is very interesting to me. And I'm glad you mentioned the modern player because that's the first thing I started thinking about. And I know you made reference in your book to the hockey calendar, if you will. And really, there's no end date on it these days. And and there wasn't much of one when you were playing either. It's basically year round. Well, yeah, yeah. I had to stop playing lacrosse because it was lacrosse or hockey for me. And uh, the two started intersecting. And today it's, it's like that was back in 81, like in, in the late 70s, early 80s. And today now it's it's a it's a science. And so if you're not subscribing to technology that speeds up the brain, technology that makes you stronger, faster, the way you think and how, you know, your thinking affects your brain cells and whether the brain is coding or or whether it's it's being conscious, you know, so that all these things are important now to success. So it's almost like uh, everybody's got to be as smart as a football player. When I watch football players and all the plays they got to learn now, it's, it, it's almost the same for hockey now. <laughs> it's amazing. We didn't have all that, right? There's no question, though, when we look back at your record of success in the game, for sure, to say nothing of your record of success post-playing career. But at the time, you were pretty driven, pretty focused. And as I recall, that first pro training camp with the Los Angeles Kings, the team that drafted you, uh, you, you might have gone in with a little bit more fire and or passion than the veterans on that team did. Well, I went in without a contract. Crazy. Huh? Second pick overall, 18 years old, first year of the 18-year-old draft, goes to Victoria, BC to training camp with the LA Kings without a contract. I ended up leaving three days into training camp, but the first couple of days were I was told slow down or or, or you're gonna get a you're gonna get a beating. Um and I, I didn't know what they meant. And 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 to me though, on the hockey rink, that meant speed up. And so, you know, it 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 was like the fuel of wanting to slow me down got met with the fuel of me wanting to prove them wrong. And you can only sustain that for so long. So, so, you know, the culture at that time was so much different and they, they were adjusting to, to what was to come. In junior, you were able to capture the academic player of the year award. What did that mean to you? What did it tell you about yourself? Hey, Gordy Howe, it was, the time, it was the time I met Gordy Howe and Gordy signed it for me. He presented it to me. It was it, it was absolutely amazing. And and I look back on it today and, and what I was accomplishing in school, I think a large part of it was because I was so healthy. You know, I was so fit. I was so focused, um, you know, at that 17, 18 year old time in my life. And so I got the work done. So if, if you're struggling out there and listen to this podcast, you can get the work done, you know, make the adjustments you need to make, I, you know, let me know. And I can, I can probably help you get, get, grab a couple more percentage points. How did you ultimately figure it out? If you will, for the national hockey league, earn that contract, start playing with the Los Angeles Kings. 
Well, I was playing because I loved it. And, and you know, the, the, the challenge is, when you, well, when you love it, you can do anything, right? You just, when you have no fear and you love it, go for it. Um, but after a few years in LA at that time, I, I, I was, I started playing hockey because I was good at it. And, and there's a big difference between doing something that you love and doing something because you're good at it. And so, you know, that, that, that was an awakening that I talk about in my book. And it's one of the key points that, you know, people need to be aware of. What do you mean by that? The, what's the difference between playing it because you love it and playing it because you're good at it? Well, you know, you're go I'm going. To, I was going to the rink after after years in LA, and 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 the, what was happening down there at the time, and I just wasn't happy going to the rink. I I want. I didn't want to go to the office. Like when you wake up Monday mornings and you hate going to your job, you have to consider whether, you know, that's going to shave years off your life. But you don't know what's happening to you. It's a slow conditioning. And so I. I I just, I, as a young player, it wasn't set up for me. And I grew to hate the environment after, after a few years. And, and, and it became uh, something that I didn't love anymore. And when you don't love it, it, you know, it makes you unhappy and, and happiness is important, right? You only get so many uh, kicks at the can. I got to think there had to be at least a, a bit of time, Smitty, that you were pretty okay as a young man in the early 1980s with a pro hockey contract living in Los Angeles. Oh, elated, <laughs> elated. I was, I was surfing. I was living on the beach. I was driving a Porsche. Um, you know, and I was eight, I was 18. The guys didn't really like me having a Porsche cause I had the only Porsche on the team. Now today they, they, all, they've all got something fancy. Right. And so, so I was loving it as an 18 year old, like just, just seeing Los Angeles and, and, you know, that just it was a, it was a fantastic experience from that perspective but when you go to your job when you're working around a group of people and that's the nature of my work today it, it's important that you're happy in that environment and 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 it it grew to a point where you know I, I wasn't happy and I was I was begging to be traded and it took it took two years today they, they just have a conversation with their with their representative and and they take it offline and the media gets a hold of it in a professional way and so the, the collective bargaining's come a long way and I'm so happy to see that for the players how instrumental was Pat Quinn in helping that trade happen from Los Angeles to Buffalo well he he arrived on the scene in, in my halfway through my fourth year and he was the Pat Quinn was the first the first one to to actually ask me what I wanted to achieve. And, and I, I told him that I needed to get out of, out of Los Angeles. And um, within, he said, do, you know, work hard and I'll do it. And I worked hard and, and Scotty Bowman stepped in to help me um, and traded for me. And I was off to uh, Buffalo and Sean McKenna and, I was off to Buffalo with Brian Engblom and uh, Sean McKenna and Larry Playfair were off to Los Angeles. That's quite a departure, although as an Ottawa kid, I guess not too bad. Ottawa to L.A. has got to be a culture shock. Buffalo and its wintry weather there off the lake had to be somewhat of a homecoming for you. 
Well, yeah, and it was a different environment. Scotty was, it was amazing. The team that, the teams that he put together and to have the opportunity to experience how he, how he worked. Like he picked me up at the airport when I was traded there and, and he told me on the way, driving me to, to the hotel, he told me that he, he had been trying to trade for me for, you know, since before the draft. And that he believed in me and and that uh, he was going to start me at center ice the, the first game. And I had never been talked like that. I've never been talked to like that in L.A. It just never happened. They could have done it, I guess. But but I went out and scored 13 seconds into my first game. I was the first star of the game, my first game with the Buffalo Sabres. And, you know, Mike Felino and Paul Sear were my line mates. So rest in, in peace, Paul. Um in the first five games there, my line had 27 points. And so we, I went from not being happy in LA and really being a healthy scratch in LA at that time to being the top on the top line in the national hockey league. And it had nothing to do with my physical ability. It, it, it was all my emotional ability and, and, and sort of the cumulative emotional trauma that I had experienced over a few years. So be aware of it. The, right now, my work is, speaking directly to that and and how to be aware of that sort of silent trauma that we suffer from do you believe doug that any of us has the ability to overcome adversity if we can identify for example that emotional trauma and find those more positive emotions that sort of thing yeah absolutely i i believe it comes from environment i think your environment programs you and the latest work uh in psychiatry proves it i spend my time with a lot of doctors and scientists today uh to prove you know a lot of theoretical work that's coming to pass but you know dr georg northoff is the leading psychiatrist in the space and he wrote a series of books called unlocking the brain they're like encyclopedias <laughs> okay but if you look at these two books I'll show you the first one. That's coding, linear. It's linear going into the brain and then consciousness. So you've got coding. The brain gets coded by what's around you, by your environment. You can't help it. You can't stop it. And then there's a gap, small gap, tiny gap, and then consciousness occurs. So you literally, in life, become what you're around. So the talent I was surrounded with as a young player in the PN was off the charts. I had four guys on my baby Raider team that went pro. I mean, how does that happen? So, you know, your environment is, is, is the most important thing for, for you to get uptake on your performance levels. What was it, Doug, that soured your relationship with Scotty Bowman? Oh, I, I, I became, uh, if I may say so, I became an asshole because I became famous. I, I, my picture was on everything. It was on the side of the building. I was making music videos. I had never experienced that. I never went through that in L.A., right? I, 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 all of a sudden, I was a superstar, a household name everywhere I went. People knew who I was. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to handle it. I, I just did very uncharacteristic things. I stopped you know, mucking in the corner, you know, all, all those things that happen to, to somebody who thinks they're more important than they are. And, and Scotty didn't know what to do with me. And we had a war and Scotty ended up losing and, and you know, and that particular war, cause, cause he got fired. And then 
I I came back to the Buffalo Sabres. So so it was a it was a really you know awful way to end the relationship. Uh, but I I take full responsibility for that. Years later, though, he was able to win at least the skirmish, I guess, when you uh, were acquired by Pittsburgh. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I was playing for the Pittsburgh Penguins with Mario, and I was in contract negotiations at the end of the season. Um, I had played out my option with the Pittsburgh Penguins, and Scotty Bowman was hired as director of player operations. I heard the news when I was driving with my wife down the Queensway. It was, I think it was in June. And um, we both looked at each other and we, and we knew that, um, you know, my NHL um, career needed to be put on pause. I was 27. So I didn't, I didn't think it was over. I never thought it was over, um, but uh, it had to be put on pause. And then I got the call two days later that uh, negotiations had broken down. So just uh, politics. I, I mean, there's more great players that never made it than ever did because of politics. A, a bit of a tangent, but because you brought up Lemieux, having played with him, of course, in Pittsburgh. So you play with Mario, you play against Wayne. Do you want to just settle the ultimate bar bet right now, Doug, and tell us which was the better player? It's funny when people ask me that I sort of I'm just blown away and like nothing against Wayne Wayne knows how to to juggle like nobody I know um, but when you're talking about hockey talent you know when you play with Mario he had one rule you never go in the offensive corner with him because he, there's already two guys on him you just get in the way so so he was he was single-handedly like the best no, no question. The, the best, most talented, strongest, heaviest on the stick, biggest paddle that, that I've ever seen. Right. Like, I, and, you know, Wayne, on the other hand, you know, if, if he has two inches of space um, to when you're going to hit him against the boards going full speed, if he just has a little tiny bit of space, his whole body collapses at the same at the same pace as you going to hit him, his whole body just folds. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable experience because I had many chances to run him through the boards and I thought I did every time, but he had this magical way of just becoming part of the boards and just like sort of extending back out again. It was, it was really, when I look at it now, it was magical because, because most guys I could, you know, I could, I could take out, but, like I tried for a long, long time. Dave Taylor knocked him out cold once in LA. And, you know, it cost us about 10 bench clearing brawls over the next four or five games, you know, cause Semenko needed to get out there and, you know, <laughs> finish that guy, <laughs> finish Dave. <laughs> so we had to protect Taylor for, I don't know how long, about a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was back in an era where you took a number and you didn't forget somebody had to pay for that. Didn't they? Oh yeah, yeah. It was uh, it, it was just it, it was part of the culture, and that's why today I'm able to talk about sort of the high performance culture because I'm very aware of what can hurt culture. 
right? I, I, I experienced so many different cultures because everywhere you go, it's immediately a different culture. Like the Dallas Cowboys have a different culture than the Miami Dolphins, right? Like in the sports world, it's a different economy. And so you go into these places and they're like cities that you can study. And so today that that's the thing that, that that's wonderful for me. I get to interface with all that different information and figure out, you know, why we do what we do so that so that I can help stop people from doing the wrong thing, you know, or help stop an athlete from taking that left turn and just guide them this way. Right. Give them the option. Without giving away too much of your work for free here, but are there overriding themes, Doug, that you have identified over your years that create that good culture? Yeah, there's, I mean, the main thing that you have to think about is there's three priorities of your subconscious because your subconscious controls you 95% of your human functioning. So meeting basic needs, clarity of thought, and helping other people are the three priorities. And so if you understand those three priorities, you're, you're able to systematically break down, you know, the negative effects of trauma that you're experiencing. So there's there, there's certain behaviors that feed those specific priorities. And when I say basic needs, I don't mean Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He, he wasn't Maslow's hierarchy wasn't uh, in, incorrect. It was just incomplete. It never went into self-actualization. And so if you put a circle on top of Maslow's hierarchy and then an upside down pyramid, then then you have self-actualization. So. When I say meeting basic needs, food on the table, uh, roof over your head, warmth, you know, all, all the social things that we need. And then clarity of thought, the studies, Massachusetts University, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, it all works. It's scientifically sound. Uh, you know, and then helping other people, um, the studies are off the charts. When, when we reach out to somebody and we give them a hand or just assist them across the road or point something out that was going to hurt them, we go away feeling elated, feeling wonderful about who we are. It's, and, and, and so that's being measured now on mass. And, and we can see that helping other people is, is a priority in our life. I've talked to a lot of players and a lot of coaches and managers on this podcast over the years. And you're the first, certainly that I can recall, that's actually brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now I'm thinking back to you being the OHL academic player of the year. So maybe this was always in you, Doug, but I wonder, did this clarity of thought come following your devastating injury? Well, I learned about clarity of thought because when, when I broke my neck and when I was paralyzed, I was, I, I was left with nothing but my thoughts. And so I had to really use my mantra and my meditation now, I, I learned how to meditate when I was 13 and I was breaking things at home. And when I wasn't kept busy, I always started to do damage. So my mom didn't put me on Ritalin and medication. She she took me in uh, to meditation. So I went on a two-week course and then I stayed off of, uh, of Ritalin. But I, I sort of left it behind, the meditation, when everything was going well. And then when I broke my neck and I ended up in a hospital bed in traction, um it uh, it saved my life okay so let's let's jump across the pond here your time in the national hockey league is done you find a place to play in a european elite league and you open your book this story i mean i want to hear it from you obviously but it i'm never going to forget this because 
of your level of consciousness and awareness while on the ice following the hit, in, including giving instructions to those who were coming to support you. But can you take us through what happened to you in that game? Dump and chase, done it a thousand times. We dumped the puck in from center ice. I was chasing it down. You can watch the video at DougSmithPerformance.com. And and I went to hit the defenseman behind the net, going full speed just by the net. And I caught an edge. I put my hands up and I didn't get them up in time. And I went top of the head first, about 22 miles an hour into the end boards um, and shattered the fifth and sixth cervical vertebrae. So it was like the same as accelerating from zero to a hundred kilometers an hour in one third of a second. That was, that was the force. If you want to know the force. And, and so I heard my neck break. It, it was like a cascade of just crushing. It sounded like crushing chicken bones. And, and I fell to the ice with my head on my hands and it was like lightning went through my body as soon as I hit the boards. It was like just picture a lightning bolt going through your body. And I laid there on the ice with my head on my hands. And, and all I could see was all the times I had hurt somebody else. All the times I had done it on the ice. I had not said thank you to people. I had, I had you know, we, we all have these things. And and those were the things that 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 I saw, and and I, and I realized that I had to go back and fix them, and and I and I made a commitment that if I got out of that situation on the ice that day, and I survived, I would go back. And I have, I've gone back to each team, I've gone back to to Pat, uh, I've talked to, I've reached out to Scotty, I've I've done I've I've done like almost everybody on that path that that I saw lying on the ice, which was a lot because it was just like a boom. I just realized that, you know, this hurting other people thing, just it, it doesn't help our health. <laughs> That's incredible clarity of thought when you're in a position where you may never walk again. I mean, you, you must have had some inkling based on the impact and the inability to get up, probably even move that that the damage was very extensive. It was it was. Three months, uh, one, two, three, three surgeries, um, and then I was I was brought back after a month in in Europe to uh, Canada. I moved into the rehab center, um, and and then it was about a year in a hospital bed, um, and. Golf helped me get back uh, because we lived on a golf course at the time. And so I used to go out every morning and, and walk as far as I could and just use my one arm that I had when I was able to use one of my arms because I lost my bladder, my bowel, my arms and my legs. And so I had to figure out what the priorities were. And, and the priorities were, of course, my bladder. So I had to get off of pain medication because I was on 50. I was on. 250 milligrams of morphine a day uh, for a year. And I was taking a knockout medication to sleep, yet I was having to be catheterized three times a day. And so I, like, we had two little kids. My wife was nursing a little baby. We, we had our second child a week before I was paralyzed. So we had a two-year-old little girl and a one-week-old little girl. And Patty had a husband who was 
was a quadriplegic. So it, it, it was, I had to stop all my medication and that was, that was like going through the withdrawals, like you see on the, on the TV. I mean, it, it was, it, it was ugly, but within six weeks of getting off that opioid medication, my bladder started working and it's been working since that was when I was 29 years old or 30 years old. And, and, and now I'm 59 and my bladder's still working, you know, so getting off the opioids made a big difference. And, and I, I'm on that boat now with the Canadian Armed Forces and with veterans, uh, veteranshouse.ca. Like we're, you know, we're, we're trying to show everybody this, right? Quadraparesis was a term I learned reading your book. I had not heard it before, not that I study a lot of this stuff by any stretch, but when you first heard that term and or diagnosis, how did it resonate with you? Yeah, I, I, when I was paralyzed, I, I, I actually went through a period of time where I didn't want to, where I didn't want to see anybody or believe anything that was going on. So, you know, it wasn't until I became suicidal uh, one day in the hospital, I asked my wife to help me because I couldn't turn the paddles on in the hospital. And, and, and once we had it out with, you know, ending it all, and then we did have it out, um, you know, every, everything started to change at that particular point. But good, good question. So how did you find it? within you like i i think what happened to you and this is what i honestly I, I i'm not just trying to blow smoke here doug i but I, what i loved about the book is how it kept coming back to the injury and and your recovery from it and then you'd move to another part of the pro career and then you're back into the injury and the recovery from it so i get the sense now that almost everything is viewed through the lens of what happened to you in that game in europe almost as if that was the defining moment that was supposed to happen to Doug Smith. But I don't know how on earth we're having this conversation today. Yeah, it's one of the reasons that I, I teach change, right? Because it was a it was a point in time where 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 it was change. I learned that change happens in an instant. It doesn't doesn't really happen over over time. And I I I, I saw that. I made the commitment to change and and that's and and that's been what I've been doing for the last uh, 25, 30 years is is moving forward on the on that change that I made a commitment to right there. How how important was it to have Patty's support through all of this? Yeah, we're um, we're we're approaching 35 years of of marriage, and uh, Patty was I couldn't stay in the rehab center when. Uh, uh, when I was trying to get better, because it was not a, a good place for me to be. And, uh, and so we got a hospital bed from Carlton Place in our home. And I lived in the hospital bed while my wife fed our, our youngest, uh, took care of the two kids and catheterized me and took care of me three times, you know, so, so she, she, she carried the load knowing that, um, I couldn't stay, um, you know, in, in the hospital, I couldn't stay in that environment because at the time it, it wasn't a very good healing environment at, with the level of injury that I had. And so I learned about getting around your kids and getting around people who are moving around. And that was part of my learning experience about you become what you're around. 
That's fantastic. And and the difference that it would make. I mean, it makes sense to me intuitively, but you having lived it, it 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 speaks volumes. Do you do you remember the first step, Doug, that you were able to take again? I remember being in in, in the rehab center and and my wife coming around the corner and and I me being held by two people and then they sort of let me go very slowly and let me walk on my own and very spastic like incredibly spastic and i remember like um i remember in my mind i thought i was skating pure i thought i was on the penalty shot perfect shape you know and my wife was just like she it, it she broke down because because that's not what she saw so that tells you something about me i I tend to look on the the positive side of things or think or think that what people are seeing from the outside is actually better than it is. So <laughs> try I try not to be too naive these days. You have entirely reinvented yourself. And this is one of the other things that I find so compelling about the story. We're talking to a high level, high performance athlete who went second freaking overall in 81 to the Los Angeles Kings. An injury so devastating, you may never have even walked again, much less skate, which I know you do to this day too. But you've transitioned now into an incredibly successful business person who spends all of this time helping other businesses and business people become successful. How does that happen? Well, I think we all, if we had something, a key that we could just give to people when they, when we meet them and we see them use the key and it works. It, it would motivate us to, to make more keys. <laughs> and, and so I look at, I look at what I'm doing as making keys, like, and, and giving them to people. Now, some people aren't ready for them. And so when I present to audience, to, uh, audiences today, I take them, I take the 75%, really it's 75% who aren't ready. And I get them ready in a way that they've never experienced before. And then they're ready. And then by the end of the presentation, I've got, I've got a hundred percent. So, so I'm able to, today I'm able to tap into the subconscious. I wish I could have tapped into Gretzky's subconscious for crying out loud. It would, have made, it would have made it a lot easier. So, so today I'm able to tap into the subconscious of the audience and, and, and take them down a journey where they, where they really can't go back because when the brain sees a better path, it binds itself to follow that path. And if it doesn't follow that path, it falls into disrepair. So, so like these professional players are being shown good stuff over and over and over and over and over. And they follow the path and they follow the path and they follow the path. And they just keep chipping away at it. And we all need to do the same thing. Maybe not at the same level as they're doing, maybe not as often, maybe not as strict, but, but that's the, the principle. Tell me more about coding and consciousness that you made reference to before with your books on the brain. You had all this time, and you said that earlier, to think while you were recovering. But where did it all begin to settle onto the brain and its inner workings for you? Well, you need to know what you got to work with, right? Fair so enough. So if you have vertigo, for example, with the coding and consciousness, um, vertigo is one of these things where until you become conscious of it, you, you don't have it right? It crosses over and, and from coding to consciousness. And so you can actually, the University of Montreal and Dr. Faubert, they're actually patching it now. So they, they put a little electrode on a piece of tape and put it on your head. 
And then when you go to have vertigo, it sends a little electric signal and it stops the vertigo, believe it or not. So, so, so if we can do that, you know, with things that, that are causing us pain and, and, and we can do it with a simple outside intervention or, or, or a, just a small behavior change, you know, your performance is, is, is going to go up. What we're seeing, it's really amazing. Um, we're, we're seeing an actual bump of between two and 300% when people start to use the part of their brain that they're not using right now. Because there's 40% of it, believe it or not, that we're not using to forward our happiness and our and our productivity. So so if, if, if I can help people tap into that extra 40%, because 50% is genetics and 10% is, is how much money you have, the job that you have. So when it comes to happiness and being productive, you know, we got this 40% chunk that, that I'm focused on helping people with. And it can make a big, a big difference for a business as well. And, and you just need to find that right key, cut it and pass it along so they can un, unlock, so to speak, that 40%. Yeah, it's just simply looking at it. All you have to do is, is have a key to open a door to look at it. You know, trauma will, will cause you to back yourself into a jail cell if you don't address it. If you don't address what's going on with your performance, trauma will cause you to slowly back yourself into a jail cell. It will cause you to, to lock the door. And then in some cases, you'll throw the key away. And you won't even know that you're doing it to yourself you, you, because we're not equipped. And so part of what I teach is, is, is exactly what's happening to us. So everybody knows how, how this process works. And, and help them see what they couldn't see before. Because why would I teach? Why would you teach somebody something they, they can already see? They they know not to stab themselves in the hand with a with a fork, right? But they they don't know how to stop the cumulative emotional trauma that 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 is really affecting us today. And if you want some proof, you just have to look at the aftermath of 9/11. If you want a smaller version of it compared to a global pandemic. Then look at the aftermath of 9-11 and you'll you'll see the psychological fallout. Is there any comparison at all, Doug, between let's say being in the locker room dressing for your first playoff game versus preparing for the first presentation you made to a Fortune 500 company? Yeah, the feeling in the stomach is the same. I can't eat. I spend the night before not able to get it's it's really it really is the same feeling so i don't i haven't been able to distinguish a difference in the gut uh with respect to success it doesn't everybody who's successful has it just the same as we have it so if you're feeling nervous about trying something um you know as long as it's safe um you know take a chance go for it you know like uh, jump our uh, our viewers on YouTube for this episode are getting a real treat, and I would be remiss if I didn't get some of the stories behind what it is that's behind you. Directly behind you right now is the classic gold uh, LA Kings jersey, number 23, Smith on the back, naturally. But that one comes from what I do believe remains to this day the biggest comeback in NHL playoff history. Yeah, well, I, I can I can move a little bit here and 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 let your viewers see. There's Gretzky, Messier, Coffee, Curry, and Fuhrer, and I'm tucking it in number fifteen in white. Uh, 
Yeah, I was going to say, who's that guy celebrating in behind all of them? Yeah, that, that's a game-winning goal. And then down here is the Queen Jubilee medal from the Queen of England for the community work that, that we've been able to accomplish. And then there, there's a, a friend and, and the amazing Kreskin, probably the number one person in the world at, at you know, understanding the subconscious brain. I think there's a lot of people that would agree with me. And then, of course, I've got two pucks, my first goal in junior and my first goal in the NHL and then a few of my books and favorite things. And I got tucked, tucked in the back right here. Look at look at that guy. Ron oh, my gosh. <laughs> Ron's been so supportive. He's been the most amazing guy with with respect to my work and 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 being being available to me and helping and, and supporting me on the inside. So I re really appreciate a big shout out to 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 Ron McLean, man. He's a, he's a super guy. When you and I were chatting to arrange this conversation, you mentioned Kreskin to me. Give me that backstory, please. Because as I said to you, when you mentioned his name, those were my Saturday mornings as a kid. I remember the amazing Kreskin on television all the time. How did that meeting end up happening? I was working with somebody at the time he was coming into the casino Lac Limi to, to, to do, to do his gig in front of 3000 people. And, um, I, it was arranged that we would meet and have, have dinner and, and, uh, the night before and, and spend some time, you know, just, just, uh, eating, breaking bread together and, uh, getting to know each other. And I came armed with a question, um, I wanted to know the change that was going to happen uh, that was going to be the most expensive thing that we missed the, you know, what's, what's, what, what thing in society was going to be the, the, the thing we should be concerned about the most as a human race, but we don't see it yet. This was in 2017. So small screens, minors and locked doors. Small screens, underage people, and locked bedroom doors is going to be the is going to be the the most expensive uh, trauma that we experience as a society. That was in 2017, and you watch this is going to come true. He's good at what he does. That's wild, absolutely wild. Now that photo that you made reference to as well, you're wearing number 15 for the Buffalo Sabers. You've just scored against Grant Fuhr, and also in the picture, Wayne Gretzky, Yari Curry, Paul Coffey. I'm missing one there. Who else is in that shot? Oh, Curry, Coffey, Messier. Oh, and Gretzky, of course, Gretzky. yeah. And then you score it on Fuhr. And you can uh, see that you can see that goal on my YouTube channel too. So I, I, I'm putting, I'm going to be putting up more and more. I think there's 50 or so, but uh, there's going to be hundreds up there. And, and my message that I deliver today compared to the goals I scored uh, we'll be up there as well. So I'll make, uh, I'm going to make sure that uh, a lot of this information is, is available to people. You had that photo signed by all of the participants in it, even though they probably didn't enjoy it as much as you did, but cause you were back for the, the closing of the old arena. Yeah. So, so when I, when I was in, in Buffalo and, and I had a fallout, uh, I was, I was traded. It was at the same time Gretzky was being, purchased by the Los Angeles Kings. So about a month after that happened, or just weeks after that happened, I went from Buffalo to uh, to Edmonton. And then I got bailed out by Vancouver. What was the question? 
<laughs> how you ended up getting that photo signed because i think it was when the old yeah. la right yeah so 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 i i had a short stint with the edmonton oilers for a few months and so i got invited back for the closing of the northlands and that this was one thing that i i brought with me that i didn't check in my bag three originals and they're all signed by all five guys and myself and i got one for each of my daughters and one for my dad. The one you see behind me right there is 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 on loan from my daughter. <laughs> That's so great. And I, I did start with the jersey, but I think the story behind it is best told by the participant because I'm pretty sure that comeback from five nothing down in the playoffs, you had the assist on the OT winner for the Kings, and it was over Gretzky and Curry and all of those Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, I scored the second goal of the game. And then um, the, the way the story goes, just so everybody knows, and you can just look up Miracle on Manchester, but we were up 5 nothing after, they, they were up 5 nothing after two periods, the Edmonton Oilers. Um, we, it was, it, was, it was a playoff game. If we won the game, we would go back to Edmonton. If we lost, we were out. And so we were down 5 nothing after two. We came back and scored five goals in the third period, uh, the fifth goal with just seconds left in the game. And then a minute into overtime, I went out to take the face off of, off of Mark Messier in, 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 the, uh, left in the right offensive corner. And I pulled it back to Daryl Evans, who had a cannon, um, and he ripped it through my legs over Grant Fear's shoulder. And we went back to Edmonton that night on the same plane as the Edmonton Oilers. So, so we had more smokers on our team. So the Edmonton Oilers got the front of the plane and we got the back of the plane because you could smoke in the back of the plane. So we got the smoking section, but that was a real quiet, quiet flight for the Edmonton Oilers. And then we beat them actually out of the playoffs. We beat them six to two. So like, it was such a shock and they never, the funny thing about it is they never made that mistake again because when they were up five, nothing, if you watch the miracle on Manchester, you'll see they were how they were taunting us. And, you know, the guys were just like outrageously abusive. And, and so that, that really turned around to bite them, but they never did it again. So, uh, you know, I take a little bit of credit for, for all those Stanley cups. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, you taught them a little bit of humility that year. Smith. You got to keep teaching, right? <laughs> if you can't do teach. Yeah, that's right. I told that to my father all the time. He spent 30 plus years as an <laughs> educator, for sure. You know, you mentioned that we can look up the miracle on Manchester. and Of course we can. And and that goal that's behind you, you scored as a Buffalo Sabre. It's on your YouTube channel. And you said earlier, too, so too is the hit you crashing into the boards that caused your catastrophic injury. Is it difficult for you to watch? I've watched it enough now. I've analyzed it and to the nth degree. I'm fortunate to have a picture of it and a video of it where I can do that, right? Because, you know, you, you'd miss part of it in your imagination. You wouldn't know. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to rip that apart, to unwind from it. Um, you know, I still get treatment today at my whole right side. I have needles in me. I'm getting acupuncture, uh, Eastern medicine, Western medicine. Um, you know, I'm all plant medicine, no opioids, uh, you know, no antihistamines. Like I, I'm not on any type of medication now. So I like I've I, I'm I'm really pleased with uh, with where things are at from a health perspective. 
I wanted to ask you, and, and before I let you go, Doug, the foreword to your book, you had your dad write it. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, I mean, he, he always, if you want to have a, an athlete and you want to raise an athlete, get them the best equipment. Don't skimp on equipment. My dad and mom couldn't afford what they bought for me, but it was always like the best, the best glove, the best stick, the best bat. Like they, they let me practice with tools that were the best. Like you don't, you don't want to go in and try to build a house with a toy screwdriver, right. Or a toy drill. And, and so you parents out there, like if you know, get them the best equipment, teach them how to take care of it. And 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 let them practice with what the pros are playing with, and that, that that would be a recommendation of mine. You know, do you keep in touch with any of the guys you played with all those years? Uh, yeah, I keep in touch with uh, Jim Kite, who who was the professor at Algonquin College and drafted the same year as me. Um, we stay in touch. His career ended with a catastrophic physical injury as well. Um, and, and there's, there's a few other guys that, uh, I touch base with a, a couple of times a year just to stay in touch with what's going on. And, um, I participate with the senator's alumni, uh, from time to time. It's a great bunch of guys and I hope Ryan Reynolds gets a piece of it. It'd be great. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds and Doug Smith in the same arena. I don't know if we're ready for that. <laughs> Well, listen, this has been uh, a, a real privilege and, and honor to have this conversation with you. The story is absolutely remarkable. And I think to see where you are at today, Doug, is inspirational for anyone listening to or watching this podcast. So thank you very much for making time for us. Well, th thanks for making this information uh, available. And please point to, to my website. You, people can download uh, just a simple checklist off the front page. They can see the accident on the front page and how I've surrounded it, surrounded it by with something positive. And they can go to the traumacode.com or dougsmithperformance.com. You know, you'll find me. I'm I'm really accessible. I've worked really hard to be accessible. So don't don't hesitate to reach out. Really appreciate it, Mike. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.